I, uh, I bring you greetings from the church I pastor back in Massachusetts, Pepperell Christian Fellowship in Pepperell, Mass., about an hour from Boston, home of the New England Patriots. Didn't know how that would be received. Probably with a mixed response. Uh, I, I am friends with Jim Samra, very thankful for my friendship with him. Uh, he and I belong to a group of pastors that get together in Chicago once a year. And it's been really a pleasure to spend time with him, study God's Word with him, eat meals with him, and get to know him as uh, a person, uh, as a fellow believer, as a, a very humble man, uh, as a man of prayer. And so I am I'm thankful uh, to be here, and, and I know you are thankful to have Jim as your pastor. just want to affirm, again, confirm to you what a great pastor you have. Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21 and verses 9 through 27? That's page 1004 of the Pew Bible. As you turn there, I wonder, have you ever read a missionary biographies? Is that something that's part of your Christian life? I think it's one of the best things that Christians can do to be encouraged to, to grow through the weaknesses and strengths and the defeats and victories of Christian men and women who've, who've lived for Christ in past centuries, past times. Of all the missionary biographies I've read, one of my favorites is the life of Henry Martin, the 19th century missionary to India. And uh, after the second service today, I actually met someone named Henry Martin named after the original. In 1805, Henry Martin was 24 years old. He was a brilliant scholar at the University of Cambridge. He had a promising academic career ahead of him, and yet he left all that behind and sailed from England to India. And as he did so, he believed correctly, as it turned out, that he was leaving forever, never to see home again. No furlough in a few years. Sunday, August 11, 1805, his ship sailed along the southwest coast of England, soon to pass out of view of his home forever. So these were his last moments seeing his home country. And as the ship sailed along the coast, he preached on board the ship. One of those sermons you just wish you could have been there to hear that one. And he was so moved as he preached, as he sailed away from home, that he could barely contain his tears. His, his journal for this period is gripping as he describes what he's going through internally. He says, My anguish at times was inexpressible when I awoke from my disturbed dreams to find myself actually on my way with a long sea rolling between me and all I held dear in this life. To describe the variety of perplexing, heart-rending, agonizing thoughts which passed through my mind and served to depress me into the depths of misery would be impossible. So many of us probably would quit in a moment like that. We'd find the nearest ship and sail home back to England. And I read a passage like that, think about this man's life, and I want to know what gave him the perseverance to continue. What gave him the drive, the desire for Christ to sail away to a land and say goodbye to his home forever for the sake of the gospel? What allowed him to do that? And his journal gives us 
I think, a pretty clear answer. Because it shows us that Henry Martin was consumed with heaven. He had a passion for the new creation. And he was more homesick for his future home in the new creation than he was for England. And his future homesickness is what allowed him to sail away from his present home. He died age 31, just about six years later in India, far from England. And yet his life, his legacy, his writings, his journals, his remains have, have had a lasting major impact on the modern missions movement. He didn't need and he didn't try to seize a perfect life in the present because he knew he had a better one coming. He was a citizen of a future kingdom, a future home. And so his life embodies an important truth for all of us. A passion for the world to come allows us to love this world more and need this world less. That's what I want us to see in our passage this morning. We're about to read in Revelation 21 a description of our future home, a place where we will be. If you are at a travel agent's or browsing online and you see vacation destination, it might not mean that much to you unless you're going to be there three weeks from now. And then you'll be really curious. You'll really care about it. And this place that's described in Revelation 21 is where we will be forever. It's our future home if we're trusting in Jesus for salvation. Why does God reveal it to us? Why does he not just secure this future for us, but describe it for us in these pages? I think it's because, not not because he wants to satisfy our curiosity, not because he wants to entertain us, but because he wants to empower us to persevere in the present. He wants us to trust and obey in the present. I draw that from the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 22 where Jesus says, The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. In other words, the goal of showing us our future is to empower us to keep the words written in the scroll, to obey, trust, love, persevere in the present. The future is for the present. And so let's read Revelation 21, 9 through 27 now and see for ourselves what God showed John. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. 
The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod, found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Father, we pray as we study your word now, as we consider our future, that this would not just be information transfer, but our hearts would be stirred, we would be empowered for life in the present. Pray this, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to observe three features of the New Jerusalem we don't yet fully enjoy in this life, but which will, as we consider them, I think, sustain and empower us for obedience, joy, perseverance in the present. Number one, I want us to see the spectacular beauty of the new Jerusalem. Several years ago, my wife Emma and I were on the north coast, the Antrim coast of Northern Ireland, one of the most beautiful places in the world. And it was a bright, sunny, blustery, early morning. We were walking down a narrow road right beside the sea. Sheep grazing in green pastures way on the right and the windswept sea on the left. And I was absolutely staggered by the beauty I saw all around me. Moved to worship God. And God has hardwired all of us as human beings with this desire for beauty, passion for beauty, desire to behold it caught up in it. It's why we drive across the country to the Grand Canyon, not so we can buy the tourist trinkets at the shop, but so we can stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and wonder, behold it. It's why we enjoy the order that humans bring to the world when we steward it wisely, a beautiful cityscape, a city that's well-managed, well-ordered, beautiful in that way. We love to create beauty ourselves. Why do so many of us spend so much time working on so many home repair projects? Well, maybe it's because we need to do some of them, but, but to some degree it's because we want to make our corner of the world a little more beautiful than it is. God made us that way. And the message of our passage 
is that as followers of Jesus, our assured future is one of perfect, perfect, final, consummated beauty. Look at verse 11. See this future. The new Jerusalem shines, amazing phrase, with the glory of God. Shines with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. You can see John groping, grasping for images, the most beautiful things he can find to describe this vision. And he uses a jasper and crystal. He does the same thing in verses 18 through 21, where he describes the beauty of the city by focusing on the materials out of which it's constructed. And you get the sense that he's just beckoning us to imagine what it will be like in the new creation to have our desire for beauty heightened and satisfied, heightened and satisfied, heightened and satisfied forever and ever and ever. It's what we're made for. But obviously, we're not yet there at the new creation, are we, in our present experience? There's a lot of ugliness in our world, smog, pollution, graffiti, urban sprawl. No matter how hard we try to beautify ourselves, we're never fully satisfied. We go on the diet, add the exercise plan. We're not still maybe who we want to be, often disappointed by our own lack of beauty. I look back at photos of myself in high school when I thought I was pretty good looking, and now I think, what were you thinking? <laughs> Disappointed. Not yet at the new creation. Why, why, why does God, why does he not just secure the new creation for us, but why does he give a vision of it to us? Why did he give John this vision and inspire John to write it down, record it so we could read it 2,000 years later? Why does he want us to know where we're going. Why does that matter? I think the answer is because a passion for the beauty of the new creation allows us to love this world more and need this world less. So when we experience beauty, we love it. We celebrate it as a foretaste of the perfect beauty that's coming. It doesn't cause us to stay here, to linger here. We're still pilgrims on our way to perfect beauty, but the foretaste beckons us to more on the pathway of life. And on the other hand, we're not afraid of ugliness, of imperfection, of brokenness in this present world. Last October, I visited some missionaries in Gulu, Uganda, up in the far north of Uganda. They're living in a hard part of the world. There's much natural beauty, but also a lot of brokenness, ugliness, grinding difficulty. And the thing that moved me most during those couple weeks in Gulu was watching this missionary couple love their daughter, who is severely disabled with cerebral palsy and epilepsy. Grace is an absolutely beautiful girl made in the image of God. And yet, many might not see or recognize that beauty. They might be tempted to try to get away from her drooling and smells and her convulsive movements and the food that gets all over her face and hands and the odd grunting and groaning. But I watched many times as her dad would walk into the room and find her on the couch and settle down behind, beside her, cuddle with her, love her, get covered in the food she was eating, not even notice. 
as he showed the love of Jesus to her and experienced it from her. God calls us as followers to move toward what is broken and imperfect and ugly in our world and to bring the beauty of Christ to these places. And we can do that only if we're convinced that our world will one day be remade. If we know we have a beautiful, perfect future home, we don't need to try to seize all the beauty now in the present. Our eggs are not all in that basket. We can move toward brokenness with the beauty of Christ. We can share the beauty of the gospel. And as we do so, we will be following the example of our perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived through the ugliest place on earth, the cross where he bore our sin and the wrath of God, the brutality of the cross. Why? Why was he able to live through that? What sustained him through that? was the beautiful promise of sitting down again at the right hand of his Father in heaven. It was the future that sustained him in the present. And so too, as we focus on our perfect final future, we need this world less when it fails us, when it's not beautiful. We love it more. We bring beauty to it from the future. There's a second thing I want us to see about John's vision of the new Jerusalem, and that is its perfect community. So we long for beauty in this world. We also long for community, love of a friend, intimacy of a spouse, the brotherhood of your unit who fights alongside you, or of a team who's aspiring to the same goal with you. And the message of this passage for us as followers of Jesus is that our assured future is one of perfect community. Now, I want us to see it's not by any means a uniform community. It's rather a very international community. So look at verses 24 through 26. You'll see that these verses picture this as a city for all the nations. So all the best of every culture enters into this beautiful city to live there forever. The best art forms and cultural practices and literatures, all these things transformed through Jesus Christ entering in through the gates of the city. So the New Jerusalem will be an incredibly diverse place. It won't be uniform, but it will be deeply unified. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel are inscribed on the gates of the New Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb are written on the 12 foundations of the city wall. In other other words, there's profound unity in all of God's people, all centered on deriving from the sacrifice of the Lamb, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 5 of Revelation. According to verse 21, only those written in the Lamb's book of life are the inhabitants of this city. So the unity of the community is founded in Jesus Christ and its perfect community forever. Obviously, we're not yet at the New Jerusalem in this respect either, are we? We experience broken community every day. Maybe you have already this morning. Phone call with a friend or a family situation. There's something broken, something not right. We need security systems 
We need passwords for our computer online accounts. We need to lock our cars. We need law enforcement. And we all, because we're built for heaven, we all have this aspiration toward perfect community. Sometimes we try to locate it, find it in this world, and we, we find again and again that that fails, that attempt fails, doesn't succeed. My wife and I have three small children, love them dearly, but we had never fully reckoned with all the stresses and strains of family life. That was not our golden picture of a happy family. We hadn't reckoned with perpetual sleep deprivation, sleep zombies for an entire season of life. A few years ago, our son Samuel was very young, not sleeping too well. And I got up extra early on Easter Sunday morning to get ready for our church's Easter sunrise service. Went in the bathroom, took a shower, came back into the room to wake my wife up. And I said, Happy Easter! He is risen! And my wife rolled over in bed and sleepily groaned, Oh, is Samuel up already? <laughs> that's, that's life in imperfect community. That's reality. Now, obviously, it gets a lot worse than that, a lot serious, more serious, more damaging than that. People disappoint us. People sin against us. We sin against them. I wonder, have you ever tried to work through a conflict with someone? You really wanted to break through that wall? Maybe the other person did as well, and you both came to this moment of silence where you just did not know what to say. Stumped, broken, baffled. We're not in the new Jerusalem. So why does God show John this vision of our future and then inspire him to record it for us? Why does God not just secure it for us? We don't need to know about it in advance, do we? He's going to get us there. Well, he does want us to know about it in advance. And I think the reason is because a passion for the perfect community of our eternal future allows us to love this world more and need this world less. It allows us to keep the words written in this book. We celebrate and we enjoy the community we do experience as a gift from God, as a foretaste of our final, perfect, coming future but we're not afraid of imperfect community. We don't run away from it because all our eggs are not in that basket marked present. We're looking toward a better future. If we're not totally confident that we will enjoy perfect community in the new creation, we may believe that this world is our only chance to have it. So we may try to seize perfect community now in the present. If our marriage is imperfect, they all are, we may be tempted to ditch this one and go try to find a better one. Or perhaps just settle into uh, a kind of bitter, disconsolate, long-term future. We won't be able to patiently trust God with an imperfect present if we don't have an assurance of a perfect future community. But if we do, if we have that assurance... If we're reading Revelation 21, if it's stirring our hearts and our passions, then we will have hope to persevere in an imperfect present. We will stay. We'll be hopeful in our marriage, in our family, in our small group, in our church. When they disappoint us, we'll stay. We'll work for better community. And we'll persevere in imperfect community. Think of a godly woman in my church 
who's married to a man, not providing the spiritual leadership for which she longs. And it's hard for her. She hurts, she aches, she prays. Her focus on the new creation is not making her passive. They've sought marriage counseling and they've made things a bit better. But her focus on the new creation is giving her a deeper thankfulness for what's good about the marriage. She sees it as a foretaste of a perfect future. And it's giving her endurance to not become bitter, resentful about her husband's inadequacy. She's not considering leaving the marriage because it's not as good as it could be. See, that's how we live when our eggs are not in the present basket, not all of them. There's a future. We have hope. We persevere. We keep going. We love this world more, and we need this world less. Finally, best of all, this passage shows us another wonderful feature of the new Jerusalem, its chief resident. See, this is helpful to understand a bit more about the most important room in the history of the universe, namely the Holy of Holies, that room, inner sanctuary in the tabernacle, later in the temple, where God's presence rested over the Ark of the Covenant, Leviticus 16 in the Old Testament describes the one person, the high priest Aaron, and the one day in the year, the Day of Atonement, when he could enter the Holy of Holies. And it was a sacred moment. It was a dangerous moment. Aaron would die unless he made elaborate preparations and followed through on those preparations. He had to wear the right clothes. He had to make the right sacrifices. He had to manipulate the blood correctly. He had to bathe the right way. He had to burn the right incense. 1 Kings chapter 6 describes King Solomon's construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And it focuses in, in verses 19 and 20, on the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary. Here's what 1 Kings 6, 19 and 20 says about the Holy of Holies. The inner sanctuary Solomon prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits high, and Solomon overlaid it with pure gold. So just get the picture of this totally unique room in your mind. It's a perfect cube, 20 by 20 by 20, and it's overlaid on all sides with gold. Only the high priest can enter it, and only once a year. Now I want you to look again at our passage, Revelation 21, and verses 15 through 17, and see how John describes the new creation. Why does he describe it this way? It's really, it's a city unlike any city any of us have ever visited. Kind of a bizarre city, because it's in the shape of a cube. Verse 16. It's as wide and high as it is long. And it's an absolutely massive cube, 12,000 stadia, on each side. That's well over 1,000 miles, so the distance from Boston to Minneapolis. The entire cube is gold. Verse 18, the city was made of pure gold, as pure as glass. So the New Jerusalem is described as a golden cube. Why? Why? Because it is the Holy of Holies the perfect place of the presence of God. It's pictured another way in verses 22 and 23. 
the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. God and the Lamb are the light of the city. So I want us to think about the privilege we will enjoy. If we're in Christ, if we're clothed with His righteousness, as we sang earlier, the place where only the high priest could go only once a year is where we will live forever in the perfect presence of God, drinking and drinking and drinking of the river of His delights, knowing as we've been known, satisfied in His presence at His right hand, experiencing joy. We're not yet there, are we? Our experience of the presence of God fluctuates. Sometimes we feel Him close. Sometimes we feel He's absent. I recently read C.S. Lewis's little book, A Grief Observed, which he wrote after the death of his wife, Joy. And he speaks in that book of going to God for help and finding a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside after that silence. And I wonder if some of you are feeling that this morning. You don't feel close to God. You feel silence. You feel far away from Him. So here's an encouragement. Here's a future hope. It will not be this way forever. There's coming a day when we will know Him perfectly and we will drink of the river of delights to our heart's satisfaction and be satisfied. So stay faithful to Him. If that's you this morning, if you don't feel His presence, stay faithful to Him. Continue on the pilgrim way to the new Jerusalem to an experience of His perfect presence. God may or may not call us to leave home and die in a foreign land on the mission field like Henry Martin. But I wonder, what if He calls us to lose something smaller for His sake? What if He calls us to lose a promotion at work or a bonus, a raise? What if He calls us to lose some comfort or some money? What if He calls us just to lose a quiet evening because we're, we're not lying on the couch, we're out serving someone He called us to? What if He asks us those things, asks us to give Him those things? Well, if we need them, we won't give them. But if we're focused on the new creation, we won't need them. Our, our eggs won't be in that basket. We'll have a future hope. We'll persevere. We'll give what He asks us to give. What unlovely people, I wonder, what parts of our city or the world might God be calling us to reach? What kinds of broken community do we experience now? And can we bring the love of Jesus to, instead of pulling out, looking for something better, can we invest in, persevere, hopefully in, because of the, the future hope? A few years ago, a friend of mine was unjustly fired from a high-profile job, and so he had to go through all the ensuing disappointment and discouragement in the glare of the public eye. And I realized when I met with him some months later, to my delight, that he was doing well. He was resilient. He and his wife were trusting in the Lord, planning for their future. And I asked him if any particular Bible passages had been helpful for him in that difficult period of time. And he told me that he'd been helped by the commendation of Abraham in Hebrews 11. I think that's just about where you are in your current sermon series. 
Abraham endured hardship in the present because he was looking for what? For a future city. That's right. As we trust in God for a perfect future, we are living as God's people have always lived with a future hope, a future orientation. And Hebrews 11 says that Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you secured this future for us and then you told us about it. Because I think you want us to live differently in this world. You want us to need it less than we do. We, we confess that often we need it too much. When it fails us, we fall apart. So would you help us to need it less? And would you help us to love it more? Would you help us to be more on mission to our neighbors, to our communities, our church? Would you help us to love those around us with a love that will be perfected forever in the new creation? And we pray this for your sake, in Jesus' name, amen.